I think they think I missed them, but Tony Sadar and his wife just celebrated their 40th anniversary. And so you were married on the day I was born then. Let's, let's embarrass, embarrass them. And somebody topped you, though. Pastor Brown and Pauletta, 41 this week. Check it out. See, we like to be, we like to get to know each other. We're the people kind of church, you know what I mean? There's a couple of characters down there. All right. Romans chapter 1 and Romans 16. We've been working on that one. That's probably the hardest I've ever worked on Romans is the greetings at the end, believe it or not. Now, remember, there's going to be a Sunday school volunteer Christmas luncheon on on this Sunday, December 10th. For all Sunday school volunteers. Can you still sign up for that? I guess. I guess you can. And all volunteers that plan on attending the luncheon, please sign up at the information table. Also, for the Salvation Army treasures for children, new clothes and toys for kids, no guns, grenades, bombs, toy bombs, or, you know, nobody gets a red rider. But, no, toys, children's clothes of all sizes, all the way through December 15th. I understand we've already had one truckload delivered, so thanks for your generosity. And it's very much appreciated. I I get these little feedback. I think, Claudia, you got some feedback recently about it. They're very grateful for that. So keep it coming. Also, December 21st, that's Thursday, I just talked to my brother in grace, and he'll be doing a Phil Henry Power Gospel right here on our stage. That was a really bad Ed Sullivan. Man, that was terrible. So, is that it? Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of studying Romans, the epistle, the magnificent glorious truth that's found there is so timely for us and so timely for our nation, our generation, and even for the world today, but most of all for believers. We pray that you'll use what we study tonight and what is communicated here. Grant us, grant me the capacity to communicate with clarity and the power of the Spirit and all of us to be receptive in the power of the Spirit to what is communicated, and may this be toward a Christian unit integrity, not only here but elsewhere, for those going through unique and under, undertaking or undergoing particular kinds of trials and tests. We pray for grace and compassion to be poured out and for you to speak peace into situations that seem desperate. Turn desperation into hope. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is part two of a message called The Implications of Paul, a Slave. Now, I know that's just the first phrase of Romans, but we're not really just staying there. It's going 
it fans out like a fire under the wind throughout the whole epistle of Romans. And so beginning at Romans 1, we have this so far, and I reserve the right to change even the translation as we go. And so when we're done, there'll be a full translation of Romans, and there'll be also a full commentary, a short one, along with all these messages in print on the Internet. If you're truly interested in this series, you want the most benefit from it, I recommend both the audio and the written, even above the video, because I look really rotten on TV. So, but, uh, so, in fact, there's lots of things I might say that aren't in the written, but there's a lot in the written that I might not say also. So those two together are quite a power pack. Romans 1, we have this so far. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And that's where I want to fan out a little bit today. But effectively summoned to be an apostle. Set apart and limited, it says, to the task of preaching the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. And here's a traditional statement of the gospel in 3 and 4, which is true, and of course it's right, but Paul departs from tradition or at least expands from tradition. This gospel, and of course also the sacred writings that speak about it, are all about his son, who is from the seed of David according to the flesh, or hereditary heritage, designated as the Son of God with power according to the spirit of sanctification by the resurrection from the dead. Paul continues from that traditional statement of the gospel to his own mission and purpose, through whom we received grace, notice that grace is first, and apostleship, grace always precedes authority in the kingdom of God, to bring about the obedience that is faith. Please notice that faith is brought about. It's not an existential decision by someone over another person who doesn't decide to believe. It is brought about by the very gospel itself. And Paul is called, he said, for the bringing about of the obedience that is faith by all the nations. We could say among all the nations for now. For the sake of his name, among whom you, that includes you here tonight too, you are also the called. That means you've been effectually summoned. Both sides of the summons are God. He does the call and he does the answer for you. You are called. You're effectively summoned into to, call, uh, to belong to Jesus Christ. And then verse 7 finally gets to the greeting. To all those who are in Rome, loved. And that means elected. Love and election. Being loved and elected by God is the same thing as we're going to see. Loved by God. Called saints. That always gets a laugh. But grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's particularly the Pauline greeting. Now we've been considering here the significance of the opening words of Romans to the whole epistle of Romans, which we call Romans the epistle. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. 
You've seen that this significance would not be lost on the many slaves who are among the saints in Rome, a great and massive population of slaves in Rome, that the saints were called out from them. Many of these slaves were imperial slaves, and therefore they had opportunity for great promotion in the Roman Empire, but many are also what we would call common slaves or household slaves, and many of these met in tenement buildings in the urban sections of the city, which we call the slums, others of whom were imperial slaves, and that's what Paul means when he's a slave of Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus is the king. Therefore, Paul is not only a slave, but he's specifically a herald or a courier of the king. He announces the worldwide dominion of Jesus Christ, not Caesar, and the universal salvation brought to mankind and all of creation, which was claimed by Caesar. He claimed to bring universal salvation to all creation and all humanity. And that, of course, is something Jesus Christ does, not Caesar. There was a gospel of the Caesars, beginning with Augustus, Caesar Augustus. It was called Euangelion, gospel. It was a proclamation of universal salvation brought to all the world and all creation by Augustus, the Caesar. It was called a gospel. Augustus had the title son of God. He had titles like Theos, God, Soter, Savior, Kurios, Lord. And all of these titles, of course, are attributed to Jesus Christ. So Paul writing right into the heart of the heart of the cosmos at the time was writing an epistle that really challenged the whole Caesar cult. So we're going to get into that another time. But this right now I want to consider on both ends of Romans the significance of this Paul a slave idea. And so many of those that Paul wrote to would be very happy. They'll say, hey, he's one of us, a slave, and he's proud of it. And so there was a great rapport that Paul had with them. These imperial slaves, as well as slaves, met in places sometimes where they worked in the vast bureaucracy of the Roman Empire. In Romans 16, the character of five churches of Ro in Rome is disclosed. There are five churches there, not just one church. Paul doesn't say to the church in Rome. He says to the saints in Rome. They are scattered and fragmented into five cells, basically. And these five cells, in many cases, are at odds with each other. And it's because of group bias, a bias and a prejudice that rules each of those churches. Paul wants to break down the bias, bring in unity, a unity that imitates the unit integrity of the triune God, John 17, 21, so that when he gets to Rome, he'll have tactical and logistical support from a unified church for the advancement of the gospel to Spain, all the way to Spain. When Paul gets to Spain, he would have finished an ark that began with Jerusalem, went all the way to Illyricum, and then goes all the way up to Spain. And Paul would have finished what he considers to be his life's work in terms of mission or missiology, as it's called. And so it's very important. That gives us a whole idea of what Romans is all about, almost. Although there's one wider circle that I'm going to be getting into to interpret this book. So in Romans 16, there is five churches. One is a house church. 
And that meets in the home of a couple named Priscilla and Achilla, Prisca and Achilla, as he calls them here. They're Jewish Christians who are evidently Roman citizens. They are a married couple and they have the means or the finances or the wealth, at least as business people to host assembly meetings of the saints in their house. It was a house church. And so we have tenement churches in the urban centers. We have maybe suburban churches with the richer or wealthier. And there's also a distinction or there is sometimes a competition or a mutual disdain of rich and poor, which Paul also wants to break down. And we'll see that. And so one is a house house church that meets in the home of Prisca and Achilla. And there are also several households like Aristobulus and Narcissus in Romans 16, 10, and 11, who are imperial slaves in the employ of these persons. The church is made up of households in which there are slaves in the employ of these people. It doesn't mean these people are saints, but it does mean that they allow the saints to meet in their workplaces and in certain public places and worship Christ for communion, for prayer, for ministry of the word, etc. So, according to Robert Jewett, who did his homework on this, he spent at least 26 years on Romans and another six years trying to get to what he called the shorter commentary on Romans. That's the one I'm reading. The longer commentary is a thousand pages. Some of you can read that if you want. Robert Jewett, according to him, these assemblies of saints are probably congregated in the buildings where they worked. Two more cells, he calls them, not just churches, but little cells of believers, that's Jewett's term, consisted also of a group largely composed by slaves, and they met in buildings in the urban slums of Rome. We saw last night that one of their names, in fact, was Urban. And we mentioned that we have an urban, Blaze Urban, who graduated into the glorious presence of Christ. And it means city dweller, but it also connotes a slave who was loved by many and who ministered to many. And that reminds me of Blaze Urban. So he's in Romans. wonder if he knew that before he went to be with the Lord. He knows it now. So. These churches will be identified as we continue our own brief commentary. My, my commentary, I call it a lean commentary because I'm not going too, not straying too far from each verse so we can get through this before I die. The extensive set, unless I live, outlive my mind. Now, the extensive set of, which I've already think I might have done. But anyways, these, the extensive set of greetings from Paul continues. Stop agreeing with me, Trina. You're, you're. Trina's going, that's true. Yeah, she's. But anyways, um, he says here in Romans 16, 11, and remember, we got all the way up through 10 last night. So give my loving greetings to Herodian. Here's a strange name. I'm name dropping again tonight. Give my loving greeting to Herodian, my fellow countryman, a fellow Jewish Christian. Give my love to those of Narcissus. He doesn't say Narcissus, but to those of Narcissus who are in the Lord. 
So as he does repeatedly, Paul shows his love for a fellow countryman. Now, he does this public display of greeting in the face of a lot of Gentile Christians who despise the Jewish Christians. And most people don't get the idea that that's what Paul is after. He's after bringing them together into a unity all the way from Romans 118 to 320, where he classes Gentiles and Jews under sin. And then all through Romans five through eight, where he talks about the justification or rectification of all Jews and Gentiles alike. And then he even gets into universal reconciliation. And in the light of that universal reconciliation, he's saying, what's the point of all these group biases and all this clamor for a need to feel superior over some other group? So he doesn't want to get to Rome and find a shattered, fractured, fragmented group of hateful saints. That's kind of an oxymoron in itself. He wants to find a unified assembly where he can get some tactical and, yes, even financial as well as logistical support for his all-important to him, Romans 15, 28, mission to Spain. He owes a debt, he says, not only to Jews and Gentiles, but also to barbarians. So not only were Jews kind of pitted against Gentiles and Gentiles against Jews, but both Jews and Gentiles were pitted against barbarians which included the Spanish people who had not yet heard the gospel and had not had the scriptures there at all so as he does repeatedly Paul shows his love openly and affection for a fellow countryman this time for Herodian who may also be one who came from the family of Herod This very show of love from the slave and apostle of Christ Jesus resists any group bias among Gentile Christians against their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. Important. The whole argument of Romans militates or resists against group biases rooted in human arrogance and the desire for a sense of superiority over others. This means that even the argument of Romans 118 to 320, which is a segment of Romans, which starkly manifests the universal sinfulness of Jews and Gentiles, is directed toward this practical end. And this means that the manifestation of God's universal mercy in Romans 11.32 for Jews and Gentiles alike, as well as for barbarians, Romans 1.14, is also directed to that end. Christian unit integrity. To that end is also directed these significant closing salutations. That's why I'm hitting them first instead of waiting for a long time. The demolition of group biases is a necessary negative to bring about the positive of Christian unit integrity. You don't have to think too far to see how this applies to group biases in America today. We are a shattered people. There's racial, there's ethnic, there's political biases, there's hatred, there's 
mutual disdain. There's judgmentalism. There's bringing out of the closet every wrong done for the past 35 years. To, and that's just beginning. That's just beginning. As someone said yesterday, it begins with politicians, but wait until the accusations come to your husband, your wife, your brother, your sons and daughters. And they will, because it is a, it's a trend that is a vying for being superior over others. And in this world, let me tell you this, if you study history or if you study life in this world, there is in every single person, according to the flesh, a little oppressor there. Or if you like pizza, a little Caesar. Now, rich or poor, black or white or brown or yellow or red, doesn't matter. Male or female, doesn't matter. And very quickly, the oppressed can become the oppressor in this world. And when the oppressed become the oppressor, they usually oppress worse than their oppressors. You have to be very careful when God allows the ascendancy of one group over another, which which happens from time to time in history, that the group that attains that ascendancy doesn't become the oppressor. And that's a real neat trick to avoid. So... There's a, there's a negative necessary rebuked in Romans to bring about the positive of Christian unit integrity. In turn, Christian unit integrity, which is a manifestation of the unit integrity of the triune God, the very prayer of Jesus, Father, may they be one as we are one. That's Christian unit integrity, I call it, reflected a reflection of divine unit integrity. It's a very powerful force for the advancement of the gospel. Even as unit integrity on a football team, a baseball team, a hockey team, or a water polo team, unit integrity is really the main reason for ultimate victories in sports. Unit integrity is the reason for victories and military victories. And today is the 76th, I believe, anniversary of Pearl Harbor, which lit the fuse to one of the worst conflagrations of war in our history. And thank God that victory was won over the oppressors at great cost. So in turn, Christian unit integrity, a mimesis of unit integrity of the triune God, is a very powerful force for the advancement of the gospel and therefore of the obedience of faith among all the nations. Here's something I have in italics that you'll see in italics in the notes on the website. Listen to this carefully. The obedience of faith among all the nations is an eschatological precursor to the universal obedience and allegiance of faithfulness that's to be brought about at the parousia which is the universal revelation of Yahweh pierced. Yahweh pierced or Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ crucified is Yahweh pierced in the flesh. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That's all the nations, all the families of the earth. So the fact that Paul's mission brings about obedience of faith in all the nations or among all the nations is a precursor to what will happen when he is seen by all in resurrection. 
and when the obedience of faith is brought about in all humankind who have lived in all times. I'll say that again. The obedience of faith among the nations brought about by Paul's mission and a continuing mission of Paul in us is an eschatological precursor to the universal obedience and allegiance that is to be brought about at the parousia, which is the second coming, the universal revelation of Yahweh pierced, Yahweh-pierced, that's my new name for him, or Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. It should also be noted that the entire argument of Romans 9 through 11 famously either made the center of Romans or marginalized as a parenthesis of Romans, but it belongs to the whole argument in every single way. The whole argument of Romans 9 through 11, which addresses the temporary problem of Israel's partial hardening, which became an excuse for Gentile Christians to despise or look down with disdain or scorn on their Jewish Christian counterparts, That partial hardening and future salvation is directed, that whole argument is directed to the unifying of the fractured cells in the body of Christ in Rome. And of course, to our own time. Noted too is Paul's passionate love and deep heartfelt brokenhearted concern for his people after the flesh in Romans 9, 1 to 3 which kicks off this central passage, Romans chapters 9 through 11. So we should not forget that the problem of unbelieving Israel is solved by the salvation of all of Israel, the eschatological hope. Paul's despair turns into hope, and his hope turns into confident expectation, and his confident expectation of the salvation of all of Israel results in glorification of God not only in Romans 11:33 to 36 but in Romans 16:25 to 27. So we should not forget listen carefully to this that the problem of unbelieving Israel was overcome by the fidelity of God in Christ which will result in the eschatological salvation of all of Israel, Romans eleven twenty six, and that the problem of the unbelieving Gentiles also is solved in the same way, by the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus Christ. His crucifixion was the demonstration of his absolute obedience and his absolute fidelity to God on behalf of all human beings and all of creation. He was obedient for you. And he was obedient for all. So with Herodian being saluted in love, what struck me, and I think it should strike us all, is the realization that a person whose name reflects or is given in honor of Herod In the Herodian family, the Herod family who butchered the children under two years of age in all of Judea in order to get to Jesus. Part of the Christmas message of the Prince of Peace is that he was born into a violent atmosphere called this world. 
were jealous kings, and kings in resentment wanted to murder him. And eventually, they did. But if they had only known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory because his crucifixion was their undoing. 1 Corinthians 2.8. That's Christmas. Merry Christmas. We only get part of the story, and it kind of gets to me sometimes, and we only get part of the story. So then, with Herodian being saluted in love, what struck me was the realization that a person whose name is in honor of Herod, the great enemy of Jesus Christ, is now in Christ. Christ died for us while we were still enemies, you know. He died for Herod while Herod was an enemy. He died for the worst kind of perpetrators of high-handed evil and wickedness in this world. The worst kind of oppressors as well as the oppressed. He died for all. So, greetings from the slave of Jesus Christ to Herodian suggests at least to this speaker, to me, I hope you're not tired of this phrase, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal redemptive and reconciling effect of his death and resurrection. With the greeting of Paul to those of Narcissus or Narcissus or Narcissus, which is there's both Greek and Roman, the, the Latinized forms of names sometimes take OS into US. But with the greeting of Paul to those of Narcissus, we see a church made up mostly of slaves in the household of Narcissus, who is most likely a Roman official. This is a, gra a gracious and loving greeting, all of these are, from a slave, from the slave of Messiah Jesus, to slaves in the house of Narcissus, who are, and Paul uses this phrase now, in the Lord. To be in the Lord is to be in Christ Jesus, who is Lord. And who by virtue of his death and his resurrection is Lord of both the living and the dead in Romans 14.9. How much more the Lord of the unbelieving and the believing, the Lord of the slave and the free, the Lord of the male and the female, the Lord of all. It's a, so it's a reality that the saints who are slaves of Caesar are of Narcissus. They are of his household. That's a reality. But it's a far greater and far everlasting reality that these who are of Narcissus, Narcissus are in the Lord. Gentile Christians in Rome ought to take notice of Paul's affection for his Jewish Christian brethren. Who are sometimes called the weak in faith. Named that as a term of disdain and scorn by those who are the so-called strong in faith. Which were certain Gentile and Jewish Christians. Who flaunted their liberty against those who still might have held on to some of the Jewish kosher scruples. And the keeping of certain days and the observation of certain ceremonies which didn't cause them to lose their salvation. Any more than the observance of them would cause them to gain it. 
you think of all the prejudice and bias of Protestants against Catholics because they still, they maybe entertain certain rituals. But entertaining certain rituals is not as bad as entertaining the ritual of judgment, judgment, judgmentalism. So then, to be in the Lord is to be in the Lord of the living and the dead, who is also the head of the body in which antinomies or opposites like slave versus free person and Jew versus Gentile do not exist. That doesn't exist anymore in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, there is no Jew and Greek, meaning Jew versus Greek. There is no slave versus freeman. There is no male versus female in Christ Jesus. Those antinomies or oppositions are gone in the new man. You say, yeah, but they're not gone in churches. That's right. Because churches have to be conformed to this coming eschatological age and to the new man. And that's what Romans 12.1 is all about. Which we will also get into. It is a reality that the saints who are slaves of Caesar are of Narcissus and of his household. It's a far greater thing that they are of the household of God and the household of faith. Jewish Christians in Rome, many of whom were free persons and not slaves, ought also to take note of Paul's commendation and great affection for certain pagan slaves of Caesar who are Christians and saints. So on the one hand, we have slaves to Caesar with Gentile Christians now, the other hand, we have slaves to Torah with Jewish Christians. There's exceptions, of course. Prisca and Achilla were the strong in faith, but they didn't despise the weak in faith. They didn't make the distinction. They were like Paul, lovers of all the saints, and they are commended for that, as many of these other saints are. All were once slaves to sin, however. What a unity we have in that. We were all slaves to sin. All sinned. And that not just doesn't mean we all sinned in Adam. We all also chose to sin. There's not one person in this room or one person in this world that's older than two months old that has not chosen to sin. Well, not two months, but you know what I mean. The age of accountability. Now, I know that someone will come up to me in the hall and say that they're an exception. And I will restrain myself from slapping you upside the head. So, it's been a long couple of days of study to get this thing squared away here in Romans 16. But I love it. It's a labor of love. So, all were once slaves to sin. But all are now free because Jesus Christ freed them for freedom. Why were we freed? To be free. So stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free and stop being entangled with any yoke of slavery. 
Galatians 5.1. And that means any addiction, any dependency. All of those can be shattered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 16. I like this one. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. Who have worked hard in the Lord. Notice that. They have worked hard in the Lord. Greet Persis. These are three ladies. The beloved who has worked very hard in the Lord. Now, Paul did this kind of like with himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He said, I know I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, and I persecuted the church of God, but I work more than all the rest of the apostles. They work hard, but I work very hard. But then he said this catchphrase, nevertheless, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. So here's some points to make about this. And I'll be a little audacious and go off the reservation here and away from some of the commentators. Although I'll also bring in some of the commentators. Lifelong has been my friend A.T. Robertson and his word pictures in the Greek New Testament, even though we disagree stringently on some things. But A.T. Robertson cites the suggestion of an exegete named Denny, D-E-N-N-E-Y, who translates these names as dainty and disdain. Dainty and disdain. Robertson shows that both of these names derive from the same Greek root word, trufao, T-R-U-P-H-A-O, trufao, which means to live luxuriously. Such living is disdained by James in James 5.5. He rails against certain rich people, and he rightly does, who glory in their material wealth and who look down with disdain on the poor. And he also blames the ushers in the churches there. They bring the poor, they say to the poor person, you sit back there and they, or sit here at my feet, and to the rich they say, oh, come on down here to this pew with a silver name tag on it, just for you. So he rails on the rich that are proudly rich and have rejected faith and have disdain on the poor, but who are destined to suffer in the AD 70 conflagration and who ought to weep instead of rejoice. But Paul is addressing the flip side of this coin. Paul flips the script and he shows another kind of bias here. The, not the bias of the rich against the working class and the poor, but the disdain of the poor and the working class for the rich. Someone said recently, there's a great prejudice today that exists against orange billionaires. Never mind. But, <laughs> oh man. The Holy Spirit says, do not step in it, but what do I do? Step right in it. So rebound quickly, move on. As the parable of Jesus in Luke 16, that famous one that Pastor Brown commented on so excellently and competently, it suggests that there is a contempt for the uncaring and idle rich by the Jews. Evidently, they should go to hell and burn. You see? Be tormented in flames. 
But Jesus turned the tables again on his hypocritical opponents and he showed that those who had such scorn for the rich were themselves the slaves of avarice and covetousness. Isn't that interesting? So in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, and Tony made mention of this passage. I, I too like it. It's the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians one seventeen to 31. Right in the middle, in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, as we noted before, not many noble are called. But that doesn't mean that among the called in this age, there are no people of nobility called. Tryphena and Tryphosa may in fact be twin sisters, as some suggest. And there are twin sisters in the Proverbs whose names are the same. They are Gimme and Gimme. I think the Rolling Stones sang about them once. Gimme shelter. Never mind. That's, I keep doing that. But that's the 60s. And I'm told the music was good back then. <laughs> you get it, Bill, because you might be close to my age. But in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, not many noble are called, not many high-born, not many wealthy, in other words, are called, but doesn't mean not any. And so Tryphosa and Tryphena here might be a couple of wealthy women that are classed as that kind that doesn't need to work for a living, so they're the idle rich. But So Paul does this. He turns around and he says, and turns around is a phrase that Emery uses a lot. That's an Emery phrase. He turns around and says, they worked hard in the Lord. Wow. They worked hard? Now, they may be twin sisters, as some suggest, including A.T. Robertson. They may also be nicknames for two women among the saints who are from the class of Roman citizens who do not need to work for a living. So Paul here, again, combats the prejudice that some slaves and some freed persons also may have who work for a living and hold against the rich who are sometimes perceived and sometimes rightly as wallowing in luxury. So I thought maybe Tryphena and Tryphosa were once jet-setting sisters. I know there were no jets back then. World traveling. The Paris Hiltons of their time. But Paul makes a point to say they worked hard in the Lord. And Persis, maybe you got a little purse Accusation against Persis. Well, let me tell you something about Persis. She worked very hard in the Lord. <laughs> People who in the Adamic ontology may be slothful and idle. In the ontology of the new man, they may be very active in the Lord. Working hard or working very hard in the Lord may appear to us to be contradictory to a gospel that has, is also contradictory to false gospel of rectification by the works of the law. But Paul said of himself, again, that he worked harder than all the other apostles. But it wasn't him, but the grace of God that was with him. In other words, it was a labor of love. 
to work very hard in the Lord is to undertake a labor of love. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Hebrews 6.10 are very famous verses about that. A work empowered by the spirit of Jesus Christ. And you do get exhausted in the work because we aren't the spirit of God. We are flesh. We are human. We are frail. We are but made of dust. So we get tired out in the work. We don't get tired of the work. We do get tired out in it. So it's a labor empowered by the spirit of Jesus Christ in which we may become exhausted in doing what we love. I love to study. I love to grind these things out. I love this labor and I do get exhausted in it, but I don't get tired of it. I get tired in it. You get wasted. You labor to the point of exhaustion. That's what copy. means. It means the labor to the point of exhaustion, but it's doing something you love in our nation. And for those who get these messages that are not Americans, I, I'm speaking as an American In our nation, a prejudice against the poor by the rich has surely presented itself from time to time. But so has a surly prejudice against the rich by the relatively poor, who are sometimes motivated by a greater avarice or want or need for wealth than those who are wealthy and therefore hold a ressentiment against the wealthy for their wealth. You really can't blame someone for being rich. Because as Paul, but Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, be sure you warn those that are rich in your congregation not to trust in the uncertainty of wealth. Tell the people in 1929 who lost it all in the stock market. My father used to, as a, a small boy, used to feed what they used to call tramps or hobos because he lived on a rail line in North Bennington, Vermont. So he would often bring a sandwich out to them. My grandmother wasn't too crazy about that, but they, what they would do then is they would mark certain homes where they could get food. And so they traveled the rails because they lost everything. A lot of these guys still had three-piece Brooks Brothers suits, which they wore every day throughout the whole year because they lost everything. The uncertainty of wealth in this world. So uncertain. So if you got it, you don't have to give it all, but just don't lean on it too heavy because it might not be there tomorrow. So in our time, in this world, the oppressed can often quickly become the oppressors. And I'll say this, in all of us, a potential oppressor lives. A potential abuser lives in all of us. That's why we put off the old man with all of his activities. In a church, it's different than in the world and in politics. Because I know, and you know, people that you love that are saints, that in the life that they have in the Adamic ontology did many shameful, terrible things sometimes, criminal things. But you don't hold that against them because that would be to see them in the old man still. 
which would be a great crime against the grace of God. So we don't do that. There is a potential oppressor. And again, if you like pizza, a little Caesar in all of us. Moreover, a potential oppressor lives in everybody because in this flesh, in my flesh, Paul says, dwells no good thing. The world doesn't get this. The world doesn't know this. And so they don't cover a multitude of sins. They uncover a multitude of them. And if it's useful, bring them out from way in the past to hurt somebody in the present. And I'm not against those recent charges of abuse by powerful political figures. I'm, I'm admiring of those who have true charges against them, and they should be disciplined. I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about the worldwide sin nature, which we understand. So whatever the case may be, both of these prejudices can lead to a scapegoating of certain groups of, or, or individuals. And this scapegoating ought to be banished from the Christian churches as it is already banished from the new man. There's a lot of young people being baited into political hatred. It's, it's unbelievable. They're ruining their lives by following Jezebel-type politicians into self-destruction. And they are being coaxed not just to resist, but to hate. And it's ruining their lives. And proud young women are ruining their lives. And proud young men who don't know straight up from straight down and haven't even been introduced to A of A through Z of the gospel, ruining their lives. There's a great evangel going on today to recruit people into hatred. Don't buy it. Don't get involved in it. Back off from it if you have to. In fact, once in a while, back off from the news and get into the good news. Spend as much time in the good news as you do in CNN news or Fox news. It'll change your life for the better I had to say for the better because everybody says this product changed my life. Well, it can change your life for the worse. It changed my life. That doesn't mean anything. I, if you get shot, that changes your life. I got shot yesterday. It changed my life. Well, of course it did. Not for the better. Unless it humbled you and then maybe it was for the better. So then... Romans 16, 13, give my love to Rufus. Rufus? A choice one, Paul says, ton eklekton, a choice one in the Lord and his mother and mine. His mother's my mother. doesn't mean we're literal brothers. It means I view his mom like my mom because she was like that to me. Once again, with Rufus, meaning red, we have a very common name for a slave. I'm sure that perhaps in some of the northern European conquests by the Romans, 
They would bring in these fair-haired, red-headed, ruddy-complected slaves like Rufus. And they were maybe despised by certain people of different other skin tones, you see. And so Paul says, hey, give my love to Rufus. Rufus was a very common slave name. A choice one in the Lord may be roughly equivalent to what we may call an outstanding Christian. Now, I don't think I've ever said that about anybody. They're an outstanding Christian. Because I don't know that. They might be a slime ball in reality. Just because they sing with heart or bang a tambourine or do some good stuff doesn't mean they're an outstanding Christian. They could be an outstanding something else. But Paul says he's the elect one. Eclecton used here for Rufus. And I found this today. It just blew me away. Just, I don't even know how I got to it. Well, I guess I did. I thought about David, and he was called ruddy or reddish one time in 1 Samuel sixteen twelve. One of the first early descriptions of him as a young man. He was ruddy, red, reddish. His hair was reddish. His face was blushed with the outdoors or whatever you want to call it. But we have in David, this term used for Rufus is the same term employed for David in Psalm 89.20, which is the Septuagint of 88.20. There Yahweh says, I have granted help to a warrior. Speaking of David as a boy, I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. So Paul might be thinking about reddish David when he talks about reddish Rufus because they're both called eclecton. They're elect among the people. They're not just the elect. We're all the elect in Christ. They are select among Christians. He's special. Just like Jim, he's constantly telling me. I'm special, he says, to, about himself. So I guess I could call Jim Rufus. One of these days, you know, he's going to come up here and speak. And he's going to get back at me with a vengeance. So, like David, who was called Reddish in 1 Samuel 16, 12, and who was chosen from the people, so Rufus was evidently Reddish and perceived by Paul to be chosen among those who are in the Lord. He might have been despised as what sometimes people call the red-haired stepson. I know that, Jude, I know you've been persecuted because you have red hair. I know that. But greet Jude. She's my fellow slave in the Lord. Don't you mess with her. Now, he is distinguished. The thing is, Jude, you don't have anybody that dislikes you, so I can't defend you because everybody likes you and loves you. He is distinguished even among God's people, Rufus. As the RSV says, he's eminent in the Lord. That's one translation's pretty good, eminent in the Lord. So he's a common slave, and Paul says, hey, greet Rufus. He is eminent in the Lord. That's the way of the cross. The common slave is eminent in the Lord. That's the way of the cross. The slave who was God himself, in essence, took the form of a slave and was obedient to the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion, was exalted 
not just given eminence, but preeminence over all things. It's the way of the cross. Think with the way of the cross. Just as ruddy David, a common shepherd, was anointed as king over Israel, so Rufus, a common slave in the eyes of Rome, is eminent in the sight of God, of Jesus Christ, and of the slave of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul. So it's the way of the cross that God exalts the slave to a place of eminence, even as his son, the elect one, the elect one, Isaiah 42, 1, became a slave and was exalted and given a name above all names. Talk about dropping names. Philippians 2, 8 through 10. The difference between Jesus and Rufus, though, is that Rufus has eminence in the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord that has preeminence over all. Not only over all the things in the church, but over all creation and all beings. Paul greets Rufus's mother as well, and he views her as his own mother. Perhaps because she was that to the apostle at one time or another, who no doubt forsook mother and brothers and his own, his own life also to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he did. We know that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, counted it all but dung and wrote it all at loss. You realize he had to have forsaken mother and father and brothers and sisters in his own life also for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, if you've forsaken mothers and brothers and sisters or daughters and sons for my sake, you will have not only eternal life, many mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul's referring to here. The difference between Jesus and Rufus, one is preeminent overall. So in closing, this is one of the strong implications of the phrase, Paul, a slave. I'm not just stuck on the first three words in Romans. I'm showing you that the first three words reverberate like a tsunami and travel like a wind-driven flame right to the end of this epistle. So in Romans 16 and 14, we're going to get back into that. More cells are identified. Among the people greeted by the apostle in these two verses There's a mixture of common slave names and names of freed persons all in one place. Freedmen or freedwomen, slaves that have been freed. And sometimes slaves that have been freed might be looking down on slaves that are still slaves. And slaves that are still slaves might be holding scorn against those that are freed. But Paul says in Christ, and he makes this point very clearly, there is no slave Versus free person. And so there's churches here. There's cells where slaves and free persons meet together. And Paul. Destroys the enmity there. Because the enmity has been destroyed in the cross of Christ. Who, and Jesus is our peace. As he put it in Romans. Just before he wrote Romans. He wrote a little epistle called First Corinthians. 
maybe even months apart. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he said, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made, all made, all made to drink of one spirit. So in Romans 16, let's just give you tracks to run on. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters that are with them. A little cell, around five leaders, five leaders that are slaves and freedmen in a certain cell group. Of these names, Asyncritus and Petrobus are associated with freed persons. Hermes and Hermas are common slave names. There's no record other than here of the name Phlegon until the second century when we have the name of a historian recorded. The, the siblings together with them, Tus Sun Autois, indicates a group or a congregation, or to use Jewett's term, a cell of saints who meet together regularly. So in Romans 16, salute Philagus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them, the fifth cell in Rome, the fifth of the churches in Rome, five groups. Philologist means literally a lover of reason, or we could even say a lover of the Lagos, is also a common slave name. Julia is the commonest of all the female slave names specifically imperial slaves because they are, of course, named after Julius Caesar, one of the most notable Caesars. If Philologus and Julia are a married couple, and it may be that they are, it's probably because both are imperial slaves that may have had some promotion. Nereus, N-E-R-E-U-S, possibly named after Nero, the current Caesar in Rome when Paul wrote, or in honor of Nero, is a name that's found in inscriptions of the imperial household, according to ATR, A.T. Robinson, I call him ATR. Paul does not mention Nereus' sister by name. I'm thinking maybe she was wanted by the Roman authorities. Who knows? He doesn't mention her name. Then there's Olympus, the last name mentioned. I guess we'll do that. The last name mentioned. So it appears here that these five people, are the nucleus of a group that gathers with the saints somewhere in the urban areas of Rome. So here's the, here's the pincer movement. Here's the inclusio. With the phrase, the saints that are with them, we have a match in Paul's greeting of all who are in Rome called saints. In Romans 1 7. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again by a pincer movement to get both sides of Romans squeezing toward the middle and to get the point of what Paul was after. It wasn't just to make a doctrinal point of the universal sinfulness of man and the universal mercy of God, but it was to use the universal sinfulness of man and the universal mercy of God to bring unity among the scattered, fragmented, and fractured cells of the body of Christ. A message desperately needed today for the church, the churches, the saints, and for the advancement of the gospel of the glory of the Christ that still needs to go forward today. 
So we pray that this effect will be had by our own travel together through Romans. We ask this in Christ's name.